Welcome to Launching Life at 60, a podcast aimed at women and men embarking on a big transition in their life to follow their passion. I'm Nobuko, your host, who's trying to do precisely that at 63, to become an inspirational school teacher after a career in journalism and banking. And my guest today is Jim Prangi, a private equity finance expert from Wisconsin in America. He's about to publish his first book, Setup, chronicling the flawed investigation by the FBA, his subsequent wrongful arrest, conviction, and imprisonment for financial fraud that he never committed. But at 70, three years after this harrowing experience, not only is Jim an author, but also a podcaster with a new show called Law, Litigation, and Lies. So welcome to my show, Jim, all the way from Wisconsin. Yes, Nabucco, it's great to be with you. And as you know, we're only about six hours apart. Thousands of miles apart, yes. Exactly, exactly right. So no, great to be with you. And I look forward to sharing our next time together today. Thank you very much. Well, first of all, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm so sorry for what you've been through, but your unimaginably horrific experience aside, you're now a podcaster, which you never dreamt of, did you, 10 years ago? Oh, and, no. Uh, it's very adventurous no. to do this, but I mean, how, how are you enjoying it? Well, we all have certain careers of what has shaped us as we've gone forward uh, in life. And part of what I've had lots of experience in is dealing with people, dealing with situations, uh, dealing with selling situations. And, and so I think a lot of things have really helped prepare me for the ability uh, to um, be with, work with interesting people and mm -hmm. being able to ask questions of those people because I guess I've always been curious of a lot of subjects and I became massively curious of the whole criminal justice subject because mm -hmm. of what I experienced, because of all the people I've met along the way. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so it was said to me a couple of years ago, hey, Jim, what you ought to do is you ought to become a podcaster. Mm -hmm. And I kind of said, what's that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> what's mm -hmm. a podcaster? Because I had really limited knowledge. I went through the curve uh, of trying to get a better understanding and then felt, particularly with, with the book coming on, I thought maybe now might be good timing mm -hmm. and certainly got involved in this uh, Supreme course to help learn how to be a podcaster. But with, are you enjoying with, it? Have you enjoy, you've done a few episodes, five, six? I, do. I, I enjoy it. I, I enjoy you it. You do? Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do. I enjoy, I enjoy putting the focus on the person that I'm interviewing huh? and inquiring as to what it's all about with them. I've always had a philosophy, Nobuko. I know what I know. I don't yeah. need to tell that person what I know, but I don't know anything about that person. Mm -hmm. So it's learn by questioning people. And that, that I think bodes well. So I know I enjoy it. I want to do, certainly I want to do more of it. And we will uh, get into that again as we uh, continue forward here this year. And uh, what kind of response have you had? from the audience? Have you had any? 
Well, most particularly, I did a podcast with one of my friends uh, that I met along the way in the, uh, as I affectionately call it, the government-funded vacation. Yeah. And, and, and the he, incarceration, yeah. That's right, for the incarceration. And he had, he had terrific experiences. And I had him on a podcast and we went, you know, there's this term people say going deep. I think we, I think we accomplished that pretty successfully. And so the commentary that I got back, if only on that podcast, was extremely favorable from good critiques that maybe you and I know. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I did one on, on my son too, the effects on the family when certain uh, incarceration happens to a family member. And that got very good commentary as well. So, so, so um, you, you interviewed your son on your podcast? I did. I interviewed hey. my son. And I asked him specific questions of him. Wow. How would he feel? How did this emotionally affect him? Uh, and emotionally uh, affects kids all the time. Sure. Because they're kids, right? Yeah. And, and, and it's just a process. And... So it was, it was well-received. Yeah. Wow, that was right. Okay, then can you talk us through your hiring experience? Um, because when I asked you um, yesterday, you said basically this nightmare started with an unexpected phone call from the FBI. This was in 2011, wasn't it? That's correct. Yeah, you expected a call from a friend Right. Not my friends, we expect a call from a potential client, but he picked up the phone and then said he'll call you back. And, and when the phone rang again, it wasn't the same the potential client, but it was an FBI agent. So That's tell correct. us from that. Yeah. Sure. So I was sitting actually exactly where I'm sitting right now. Yeah. And I, went, I went through that specific phone call with the individual yeah. and, and, and then... 10 minutes later and the phone rang and I answered the phone and the man said that he's, he said, hi, I, this is Chris from the FBI. Well, I've never had a phone call from the FBI before. So in some respects, you get that little initial jolt in your body of um, maybe terror because why is this yeah. person calling? Because you're expecting a call from someone else. Exactly. And you start, your brain starts downloading, okay, the events that have taken place, what could lead to having a, a phone call come from a man from Boston that's with the FBI. Yeah. So it was a chilling effect that happened. Sure. And then he started commenting, uh, and this is very memorable. He said, you know, Jim, you know you're guilty. We've got everything on tape. And I'm like, everything on tape? I knew nothing about anything on tape. And you know you're going to be having to spend time in prison. Now, that's a shocker when they oh. say to you, you know you're going to have to be spending time in prison. What do you mean? All I've been doing is trying to help young early stage companies. And, and so he went through that curve. But then, of course, he commented and said, ah, but you can help yourself. Really, how can I help myself? You can help yourself by turning in names of other people that we can go out and do the same thing too as what we're doing to you right now. He didn't quite phrase it that way, but his point was the same. You want to become a snitch? 
You can become a snitch. That's a term used over here. And if you an become informant. a informant, Is that... an informant, exactly yeah. the same thing. And I had less than zero interest in wanting to do that. It's like, I, no, are you kidding me? Did I know people in the business? Yes, but there's no way I was going to fly into Boston the next week. And at the same time, he said to me, you better go out and get yourself a criminal defense lawyer. And of course, you kind of go, what a criminal defense? I'm going to go to prison. I'm supposed to be in, become an informant for their benefit, which is going to help me. And then I'm supposed to get a criminal defense lawyer. None of those things I had thought of until that phone call. Yeah. It kind of opens your world a little bit into what the hell is going on. But so first would, of all, how did you know that it was a legit, really uh, FBI? I mean, he didn't just, I mean, yeah. How did he convince you that he was really uh, an FBI? Well, the timing, because of the person I had spoke to before, who was, who was actually was the person that we had met with July 22nd in Boston. And he was this supposed huge hedge fund manager that was going to be funding these early stage startup companies that I was involved with, helping them capitalize themselves. So having had discussions with him, yeah, you know, it's amazing how your mind works. And you start going because he had become extremely evasive the last couple months. Yeah. And you start thinking, so when a person says I'm with the FBI, I really didn't have any reason to doubt him because I thought, whoa, so this is where this is leading to. The lies that took place along the way led for me to be convinced without even knowing it that he was legitimately with the FBI because it was the timing of it all. And when you look at the phone, and of course it's got, I forget what it's called, but it doesn't have a phone number on it. It says, uh, you know, there's no caller ID or government, you know, it's all, it all so made the sense. The person you spoke to was not an FBI agent, but the person you spoke to was this hedge fund guy. So the FBI, I didn't, he didn't come on the phone. The, the, well, you had two individuals. Okay. You had John, who was the, he was the sting operator and he was the person that we met with in Boston. And he's the setup guy. He's the one that had the filming going up on the ceiling. And then he, he lies consistently to get you to believe that this is all legitimate because he's building rapport. Okay. He's getting to know you and know you. Yeah. And he did that constantly. So, then the second guy on that same call, that individual who identified himself as Chris from the FBI, it, it, never did I doubt that he wasn't with the FBI, just because of the way the situation all had been forming up. It just, it all started to seem, there was, there was skepticism on my part, which was about two weeks before, and we learned later they wanted to keep this sting going and get more people. But we learned later because I took this approach on the phone with a different gentleman in the same setup that something's not right here. And so he relayed that information that maybe I am getting concerned that this may or may not be proper of what's okay. going on. Okay. So then they moved quicker to accelerate everything. Okay. So it was a it was a strange strange feeling that day, no so question. So Chris, the FBI agent, thought that you'd buy into it immediately. 
That's correct. He really did. But, but because you put up resistance and you not only resistance, you refused to be drawn into it. Absolutely. He changed I had, his tack. I, I immediately had no interest in, in, in going out to harm other people per se, because that's what it is. You know, and, and I've learned so much along the way in drug cases and other situations of how they set up people and bring people in. Um, and and uh, for the moment, I would just say, um, it's it when you've got to go set up people. I mean, I, I there's so many examples, Nabucco. In the United States, roughly there's 600 billion a year of Medicare fraud. 600 billion. They recover. They recover. Their investigations recover barely 10% of that. So you're telling me that there's another. 550 billion of Medicare fraud that nobody gets. Why don't we go after the people that are committing the crimes instead of setting up people that have nothing but interest in trying to help these little businesses grow? That is so wrong. Now, yeah. some people would say, well, they're lazy. So, you know, it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Everybody's right there. It makes it easy for them. Yeah, that's, that's just wrong, flat out wrong. And there's countries that we've learned that do not allow this type of situation to happen. But didn't you feel scared of alienating or rubbing up the FBI the wrong way? Yeah, you're always gonna be concerned because again, along the way, I've learned so much. Remember, there's an old, I don't know about in England, but here in the US, if you lie to the FBI, it's always known, oh, you can go to prison. Oh, but if they lie to you once, 50 times, 300 times, that's okay. That's okay. There's something wrong there. It's just, it, I wasn't brought up in a nice little small town Midwestern community to make my career based on lying. But if you do what they ask you to do, they're not going to harm you, are they? Generally not. That's true. Yeah. Yep. Unless maybe you're politically involved in some way and who knows. Right. Which so that might have been one way of protecting yourself. Right. Yeah. You've, I mean, cooperation, as you'll hear and you've heard in anywhere, cooperation with, with uh, federal people or local police people, that's always your best policy. You just cooperate. Right. Right? But that idea never occurred to you. I'm sorry? That idea never occurred to you, that you might, um, you might do what they ask you to do to protect yourself. To protect yourself. That's right. Yeah. But you yes. never thought that... You never even considered doing that. No, no, I had no interest in throwing other people under the bus, as okay. we call it, and harming anyone else. And, and it was so early. Now I've got to get a criminal attorney, criminal lawyer, criminal defense lawyer. I you know, hadn't been in this situation ever before. So it's, it's, it's like a whole new experience. It's like learning how to podcast. <laughs> new experiences. So what did you do after that? Well, after that, I called up. I, well, let me back up. I was also told by that same person, Chris, do not have a phone discussion with anybody. Do not talk to anybody about what you and I just talked about today. And, and I'm like, okay. But then you start thinking about that. And I had a couple of companies and a couple other attorneys that headed these companies and most specifically, I worked with a securities 
attorney for nearly 20 years on multiple projects. And after a couple of weeks, I could, I could not take it anymore. I had to call him. Yeah. I had to call him and I had to say, Rich, I have to tell you what's going on. Yeah. He was shocked. But the same night, he immediately called, got a reference of a criminal defense lawyer. Um, of course, in his world, he never anticipated any of that could ever happen. And, and then the other co-defendant, the same thing. Reach, Rich reached out to him. So, you know, it just, it, it all seemed to be a dictatorial event that you do this, this, and this, because we're telling you this is what you're supposed to do, the man from the FBI. And, and I just, I didn't, I didn't feel good about that at all. And so I'll, so really to continue that. And then that was, that was early October. And so all of October and November, there's a certain nervousness of what's going on. But come December 1st, we found out what was going on because that's when six o'clock in the morning, six federal agents and local sheriff's department squad cars showed up in my driveway. And as I like to say, thankfully we have a long driveway so they could all fit in. And out came 14 guys, some of which with guns drawn because I guess I, I'm a desperado, just like other people. They love to make a scene, love to make a scene. That's part of the whole way of how the operation works. And there's cases you probably have heard of in the United States, like Roger Stone, where they made a major 29 people show up to arrest him along with CNN. I had you're half not, of that. You're not Roger Stone. You're Jim Prang. Right. In record, and they still sent 14 agents and six cars for just one That's person. Right. Was, That's right. Well, was the press there? Was the press there? Was there a TV camera? No, there was not. So, Roger. Who are they trying to impress then? I'm sorry. Who are they trying to impress? If there's no TV camera. Right. I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, one of my co-defendants. He went to Boston to turn himself in. He lived in Ohio. They still came to his house in Ohio and surrounded the house so the neighbors could see what was going on. Put that scare to the community. Oh my God, look at this, look at this. And that's what they do. They create these, these great scenes. So there's a term here called the perp, the perp walk where the perpetrator, the bad guy, you know, you got to have him paraded out. And typically, particularly in New York City, well, then it's a great scene because then the cameras are there and they can get it on the evening news and people can really make a show out of it. So I didn't quite have that. So but after, was, so you had, you had one phone call from Chris in October and no further right. interviews. They just came to get you in December. Right. I had talked to, I, along the way I had talked, Chris had called a couple other times yeah. just for general informational, you know, in other words, did you get an attorney yet? Did you this? Did you that? Those types of things. But that was really the gist of it. Um, but see, they rounded up. There was other people in this sting that the, that the agent did in Boston. And so they, they do a mass roundup. Six o'clock in the morning is a prime time. They like, I've been told it's when shifts change, but they come in at that particular time. And I've seen that happen in other situations too. 
And did they tell you what they were getting you for? At the time, I didn't know. At the, at the time, I didn't know because I asked one of the agents, and, he, and you know, right, right away they handcuff you. They put up your hands behind your back. You, they put you. They don't throw you in the car. They put you in the back of one of the cars. And then the agent's sitting next to me, and he was extremely cold, just very unfriendly. And I asked him, "What, what, what, what's going on? What do you?" He, he shows you, you the arrest warrant there. No, didn't see anything. Didn't see anything at all. He just rounded me up, put me in the car, and then being inquisitive, I'm asking him questions. And just to see if I can get him to kind of break his ice. And until I asked him where he went to college, and amazingly, he told me where he went to college, which was the exact same college I went to. That changed everything. All of a sudden, he got warm and friendly where I said, hey, I went to that same school. And we compared some notes and then he was very nice because we had about an hour and 10 minute ride to get to downtown Milwaukee to where they drive into down into the federal building. The door goes up, they park the car and now you hop out. Now you get to go through the whole process of fingerprinting and mug shots and strip searches. But they have to tell you what they're arresting you for, have they not? Maybe so. But I didn't know ex- I didn't know what a specific charge was at that particular time. Now things moved along that day while we were put into. I was one of my co-defendants and I were in the same cell with three other people, and and none of which were involved in our case. And then all of a sudden, there's an attorney that comes, and you know, there's a whole ritual. And then we had arraignment the same afternoon, and then we were released on our own recognizant that day. So we were released to be able to go home. We had to turn our passports in. My daughter had to drive it down to Milwaukee the next day. But I think when this attorney came, then he, then I believe he said that, you know, you're, you're being arrested for wire fraud. Oh, okay. Wire fraud. Sure. I get it. (laughs) Wire fraud. Right. That was because he wired to me $4,750. That was my supposed finder's fee. So I got a whopping $4,750. And at the conclusion of this whole case, I got the opportunity to get a 30-month sentence. Not everybody has that great experience. And the guy who wired you $4,750 is John, the guy who... And that's the guy that called me to tell me... 10 minutes, you're going to get another phone call. So make sure you answer that phone call. So John was the, John was his, his stage name was John Kelly. Good Irish sounding name. His real name was different than that, which I learned at my trial when he testified for two solid days. And those are amazing experiences when you get to hear what they say. And has he got, is this man someone, someone with conviction with a, with a criminal record? Did he have, yeah. Did John have criminal record? Did he? I have no idea. But I know that he had been doing this for 15 years, giving testimony in courtrooms. He was an FBI, uh, let's say, uh, expert pursuant to investigations that became court bound where he would give testimony in the court because he stated that. Again, two solid days he testified in my two-week trial. 
and the statements that he made were were somewhat earth shattering, if you will, to put impressions into the jury. As in, let me just give an example, Nabucco. If I said to you, Mr. Prangy is was was is guilty of illegal, fraudulent, illegal kickbacks. If I said that to you once, you might remember it. Yeah. You might not, because you're just a member of the jury. Yeah. But later that night, when we got a copy of the transcript from his testimony, we counted 90 times, nine zero, 90 times he said, Mr. Priney is guilty of an illegal, fraudulent, illegal kickback scheme. Ill, fraudulent, illegal kickback, fraudulent, illegal kickback. If you're on the jury, you're kind of like, well, he's got to be guilty because why else would he be saying that all the time? It's part of the way it all is. Make those impressions into the jury so we can get them to go, wow, he's got to be guilty of something. Our government wouldn't do this. Right. Government wouldn't do this. Yeah. We wish that was the case. I see. So so he was um, FBI's puppet, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, you know, statistics are great. Now, again, I'm giving thoughts based upon lots and lots of experience now these last several years. Statistics are wonderful. Sometimes people get promoted because of statistics. Their criminal conviction record. Prosecutors, prosecuting attorneys, they don't want to lose. They'll do anything to win. Why would a prosecuting attorney want to win? Well, you could say because they're a career prosecutor. You could also say they're looking at wanting to become partners of a big uh, criminal defense law firm, becoming a partner. They could want to become a judge. They could want to become multiple things within the political system. It's upward mobility with a highly successful record. And the games that go on in the system are unbelievable. But why do you think why do you think FBI wanted to um, uh, round up <laughs> round up um, legitimate um, private equity financiers? Well, the way the press release was written, and everybody gets really the same press release, except they change the names and the city locations. But the way the press release was written, it was written up to the Obama administration is looking out for your best interests as a potential uh, investor. And we wanna, we wanna curtail any irregularities that are in the, in the uh, um, micro cap space of equities, of investment equities, early stage companies. And so my theory based on massive amounts of information take into account that this is great press headlines that has influence on people, people, voters, to look upon the fact that, oh, wow, they're looking to protect me, even though they weren't protecting anybody. The press release was so far different than what the actual activity was that took place. So, you know, people like uh, law and order. They like justice, so to speak. In this case, it was a created justice where the crime was invented by the feds and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. That's the wrong way to have to go about catching criminals. Crime creation should never be allowed. Um, it reminds me a little bit of what I've been reading about General Michael Flynn and Katie McFarlane. 
because um, they were uh, pursued by, targeted by FBI investigators uh, under the guidance of um, Robert Mueller, who at the time, this is 2017, was the special prosecutor um, investigating the so-called Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Yes. When you were um, framed, when you were arrested, Muller was the director of FBI. Yes. And, um, but apparently, according to what I've read, um, Muller had turned FBI into um, threat-focused investigative organization. That, that's, the, that's the phrase used, threat-focused. Mm-hmm. And anyway, so Katie McFarlane, who wrote this book, Katie McFarlane was Deputy National Security Advisor, yes. reporting to General Flynn. She had nothing to do with Russia. She'd never even spoken to Russian ambassador ever in the four months that she worked for um, under Trump administration. But she, she realized that you know, later on that they come with an agenda. They come with an intention to get her. And yeah. uh, all they are looking for is just looking for evidence, trying to trip her up to get whatever evidence they can collect to frame her. Yes. General Flynn was framed. He had to, yeah. yeah. But, but um, Katie McFarlane, by the skin of her teeth, managed not to, not, not managed to extricate herself by spending hundreds of thousands of pounds on yes. top lawyers and having a lawyer yeah, present with her with every interview. Yeah, so basically they, they have an agenda and they go after it. So in your case, too, it's different, obviously, but they wanted to just arrest, make a few arrests to make headlines. That's right. That's right. It's so they didn't really like, care <laughs> whether you are innocent or guilty. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll make this statement. In, in, in the system, I'll call it the federal system. I can't speak about the state or local system. I'm speaking about the federal system. They will tell you that you are absolutely 100% innocent until you are proven guilty. Yes, yes. Presumption of innocence, isn't it? Yeah. Most of us who've been through this system would say, are you kidding me? You are 100% guilty and good luck proving yourself to be innocent. And and some people use other words for additional adjective uh, emphasis, if you will, but I'll, I'll refrain from using those words. You're guilty. You're deemed to be guilty. Good luck proving yourself to be innocent. The government has all the resources. They have unlimited resources. Yes. You mentioned this about KT McFarland and legal fees. So let, let me speak about legal fees for a second. I've got friends that I made, multiple guys that paid a million to a million five just on defending themselves. And they were both innocent as heck. And every story's got more of the story. Myself, it cost $250,000 to defend myself in terms of having the government create a crime and set me up. Something wrong with that. There's something wrong. And it's just unbelievable how the process works and the money extraction. And politically, yeah, once you're even thought to be charged and you go out and hire a criminal defense lawyer, Oh man, the money just compounds massively. 
my friend who was a co-defendant hired a law firm in Boston. Now, I don't know what the hourly rates are would be in London in terms of criminal defense work, but these guys charge $1,300 an hour. $1,300, $1,300, okay. And then he had at times two of them and at times three of them. I mean, it's like it just compounds, compounds, compounds. And you can go through, you can go through like Michael Flynn, saved up wealth or saved up assets for your whole life. And all of a sudden they could be gone because now you've got to defend yourself. But, oh, if you're innocent, do they come back and say, how much were your legal fees? We'll reimburse you. <laughs> no, no. But, you know, it's a whole nother story. They don't reimburse. And, and also you said you went to trial, but you said 97% of people choose not to go to trial, even if, you're, even if they're innocent. They right. say guilty, which is precisely what Michael Flynn did, General Michael Flynn did. Yeah. But Michael until Flynn. Sidney Powell turned up and said, That's right. change, of plea, change of plea. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So let me explain that point just a little bit, because I know Michael Flynn's case pretty well, and I've yeah. well read on Sidney Powell. Yeah. So Michael Flynn, uh, let's go back to that 97%. The average person out there anywhere in the world would say, well, why would you plead if you're not guilty? Why would you do that? You wouldn't do that. Why would you do that? Michael Flynn. So the feds come along and they put pressure on him. And pressure is put on a family member. Yeah. Well, if you don't plea, we are going to indict your younger son, your, your young son. Now, that means he could be upper 20s to 40. We're going to indict him. Do you know what happens to that guy's career once he's indicted? But they, oh. can't, they can't indict a family member. Surely they can't. Can they? Oh, absolutely. That's the biggest pressure point. They put pressure points. I got so many friends. They came after my one good friend's son. Another situation, they came after parents of somebody. They put pressure on because they want you to be forced to plea. And but then, of course, you find something. There has to be evidence of some sort. No? Evidence? <laughs> Sorry. Evidence is, hey, I think your son was involved with you. Okay. Let me give you a good example. It's me. I'm sitting in the courtroom. This is before the trial. This is like six months before. And it was a continuation. I flew out to Boston. I'm sitting in the trial and the prosecutor stands up and she says to the judge, your honor, I just want you to know that I have no experience with microcap stocks. I'm not an investor in the stock market. I don't know anything about it. I nudged my attorney and I said, holy cow, how could we possibly lose this case? She doesn't know anything about what the hell it is we're being tried for. Little did I know at the time, it doesn't matter. They create their narrative. Oh, let's see, who have we got today? Oh, we got this guy named Prangy. Okay, let's, what do we think he did? Oh, okay. Do they ever ask me? No. They create their narrative of what they believe the case should be, and then they frame it all up and create the, the government game. Let's see, as one of my friends calls it, it's the government's chess game. And they move the pawn and the rook and the queen and the king, and pretty soon it's checkmate. But they didn't so even know a thing about it. Bring in your family member if they wanted to, if they wanted him as part of narrative. 
Absolutely. They, can, they will do whatever they want to do because they control everything. A prosecutor is the main figure in this whole situation. It's not the judge. The judge wears a nice robe. The prosecutor controls everything. It's the prosecutor's decision whether to try someone, just exactly how the whole thing is going to be laid out. But then who's running the show, not the individual prosecutors? There's someone behind them. Well, there's always an attorney general. There's the U.S. attorney, 92 U.S. attorneys in the United States. There's 5,500 assistant U.S. attorneys. And then above the 92 U.S. attorneys is the attorney general. Now, in my case, the attorney general, whose name was Eric Holder in the Obama administration, turns out he worked at the Department of Justice with a lady named Carmen Ortiz, who turned out to be the U.S. attorney in Boston. And where was my case? Boston. Yeah. And there's cases that I could describe of other massive overzealous prosecution that took place, one of which was two months before my trial, where the 26-year-old kid, they threatened him with 35 years of prison for what he did, which was nothing without getting into the whole depth. And he had exhausted all of his money, probably a million dollars on legal fees, and he was shortly before his trial facing 35 years and he didn't have money. So he decided to hang himself, hang himself. Okay. hundred percent overzealous prosecution. And the government was working to come down on her, but then there's always the next shiny object or a distraction that takes place because every day there's a new situation, you know, in the world. And so things didn't get followed through, but there were hundreds of thousands of people that had signed petitions to get her tossed out of her position. And she had done this in other situations as well. So they just, oh, and I should say, what was her goal? I mean, she was gonna be a potential governor of Massachusetts. Well, that's all that matters. Throw a few people under the bus, I could be governor. That's all that matters. So you get a high conviction rate as a prosecutor, get a high, get a good press coverage. And exactly. that's going to um, set you up to become governor. Right. And we've seen it happen before, and I'm sure it's happened in other countries as well. So, but anyway, those, but those who the 3% who go to trial, you are one of the 3% who went to trial, you didn't plea bargain. I did not they don't get they don't get fair trial you're saying well so when you go to trial statistically you have a six percent chance of winning so six percent some people would say well my god you know if you get in if you get indicted arrested indicted you got at least you got a six percent chance to win no 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 first you got to take the if there's a hundred people indicted 97 of those are pleading. They're gone. That leaves 3%. And of those 3%, only 6% win. So, so now half you, a percent of, of the, the total, you're saying. That's right. So when you put it all together into the pot, that 6% wins out of 3% with 90%, 97% that have already pled. Now you got a one half of one chance to win. But even the 6%... Um, um, uh, success rate is still extremely, extremely low because that still is 94% um, yeah. failure rate. Yeah. 
However, look, you no. where you look at it, it's extremely, extremely small. Why oh, is right. it? Why you're is right. it that? Yeah. Why is that? Because the what? system, because the system is set up to be that way. And I have heard, I'll make this comment, Nabucco, knowing where you're from. I have heard the system in Japan is even worse. Yes, where I'm the sure. conviction rate is 99.9%. Yes. 99.5%. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, nothing works that way. I know, but Japan is, Japan is, doesn't have, I mean, to, no. to, put, to put, put it politely, Japan is a young democracy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But and, America isn't. Neither is the, is the UK. And, and the citizens have stronger voice than, than the Japanese citizens. And you would know that obviously far better than me because of your, yeah. your background. So I just use it as a comparison. It's, it is, it is, it, it is an unknown fact. When I told people what happened to me a day after I got arrested, I spoke to a, a longtime attorney friend who's in civil practice. And he made comments. He said, are you telling me that our government is out there setting up people? Nobody can believe that. Why would our government do that? Well, they do it. <laughs> they do it. And it's wrong. It's, it's 100% wrong. And, and it's just, again, we become collateral damage to political careers, whoever but, is but in your trial, in your trial, okay, so you're brave enough to go to trial, but they're a jury, they weren't bought juries, they, they were, pro, uh, they were hope, I mean, neutral jury, no, they were yeah. not. There's a jury the first day that you go through the whole jury selection process. Yeah. Most all they, they always tell you it's jury of your peers. Yeah, I don't know about jury of your peers. That's another nomer that they like to use, nomenclature. The people that are selected included a person that worked at a pizza restaurant, two college students, a computer software salesman, and all kinds of folks that have never been on a jury before. No. Right? Now, think about, I don't know what TV programming goes on in, in Great Britain, but I know what goes on here. You got all kinds of FBI shows, yes. police shows, cop shows. And you know who always seems to win? The justice. Justice always wins. Yes. They don't always break it apart and say, now, wait a minute. Let's take a look and see what was all done here to create wrongful convictions. Yeah. Perry Mason or um, um, uh Walterson, uh, Sam Walterson in Law and Order, yeah? Yeah, 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 there, I mean, it's, it's wonderful. So, without getting too deep here, from the day everybody's born, you're programmed yes. that the justice system is the justices of the, in, the justices of the justice system. Some yeah. of us say, no, 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 no. It's also called the injustices of the justice system. But the injustices get pushed aside. Now, there's some great projects here in the States, one of which is called the Innocence Project. And through the Innocence Project and through DNA, and DNA, of course, has nothing to do with a white collar crime, but it has to do with other types of crimes. And they have gotten thousands of people exonerated out of their guilty sense. But those things take so much time, so much time. Just yesterday, there's a press release. Two brothers from North Carolina, just one, they were both, one was sentenced to death row. 
They were both incarcerated for 31 years. Oh, sorry, we made a mistake. They were released and yesterday they won their lawsuit, which took over five years against the government and they won $75 million, right? Now, hmm. what would you rather have? Now that you're probably 60 plus years old, we can relate. Would you like to have 31 years back that you wouldn't have had to have been incarcerated in this pretty much the same place all the time? I mean, I'd say most people would like to have had those 31 years, but it's nice to get the 75 million. Of course, the lawyer will take a third and then another half will go for taxes, but it's still pretty good to settle. But, but going back to your trials, you had jury of a kind of ordinary, mixed, mixed background jury who'd never been, it was yep, the first time. So, so they're exactly. fairly open-minded, we'd like to think. And you had a chance to put your evidence before them as the prosecution. So what was it that wasn't fair about it, do you think, about the trial? Well, let's see, what wasn't fair? It's not fair when the FBI guy says 90 times that, that I'm guilty of, of, of the comment that I made earlier to just keep putting impressions into the jury. People don't, you, people don't realize that they don't catch on. I didn't know any of this stuff. I thought it was like just judge interfere. And, well, the, and, okay. Speaking of the judge, it seems like almost all the time, if the defense lawyer, my lawyer protests, the judge will not accept the protest. But, but if the prosecutor protests, it's amazing how often the judge will say, sustain, you know, we'll accept that protest. You can't go on that point anymore. It, you know, Nabucco, there's plenty of people that have been through the system that would say it's a rigged game. It's a rigged game and you don't know it. And it's just unbelievably sad that once you're indicted, it's a one-way ticket. And but let me, let me quote Katie McFarlane again. She says she never believed, she never used to believe that, um, um, that she never believe, used to believe in a miscarriage of justice, but now she sees that the system, is, the system has become dangerously perverted. Yeah, we can go with that line. She didn't <laughs> see that until, always... until she, she, she went through the awful experience that she did. And she, and she described just this week, I had a good talk with one of my old friends. And as he says, as any of us say that have been through this, unless you have been through the system, you will never understand it. Never understand it. How about my, another good friend? Let me give you a good example. He was, he's from Minnesota, but he was living in Thailand. And he's one of the podcasts that I was speaking of that I, that I did you know, recently. And this, the process he had to go through, but he's married. He's known his father-in-law for 37 years. His father-in-law read the same press release. I was in Duluth when he came to Duluth and I had read his press release in the paper. And I looked at him, I looked at his name tag. I looked at him and I went, oh, I know you because I read about you. That same press release, his father-in-law said, you know something? I always knew there was something wrong with you only because he read one press release 
that was unbelievably full of lies and slanted information. But because the father-in-law is used to believing what's in the paper, he now believes the newspaper article instead of his son-in-law of 37 years. And that's what happens. People believe what they see and read. And the distortion of facts is incredible. And um, um, judge can't correct that in the way the evidence is presented to jury. He allows prosecutor to distort it the way they want to. Well, the judge may or may not know the material anywhere near like the prosecutor might know the material because the prosecutor is the one who's creating the narrative. The judge is there, you know, not to pick on judges, but hey, if our judge is 81 years old, hmm, if our judge um, has four or five assistants, who's doing all the work, right? Who's doing all the work? Who does all the research? Well, that's why they have clerks and the clerks are doing the work. The judge is there to officiate, but does the judge know all the prosecutors? Is it ever possible that the judges and the prosecutors and the defense lawyers meet for Christmas parties and talk about things? Absolutely. I can tell stories about people that we know that have been at those types of gatherings. They all know each other. It's just one big interesting center. And if you become a criminal defense lawyer, Wow, it's a profitable center. Michael Flynn, how many million did he spend on his legal fees before he met Sidney Powell, who massively reduced her legal fees to him? Okay. And so, so, it's an interesting so when you're found guilty, why you, why you, conf I mean, why you resigned to being found guilty? You weren't, why you? When you went to trial believing that you'd be found innocent because you are innocent, right? You thought yeah, you really. believe that. You believe that. And then that's before you get to where you end up. In other words, until you get to your federal institution, you don't know other people that have been through the system. So at that time, your belief is strongly, hey, I'm not going to trial because I want to prove myself that I'm guilty. I go to trial because I'm, I'm not guilty. And now it should be that we can prove ourselves to be innocent. But while you're sitting there, for those two solid weeks and you're experiencing what goes on. And first of all, you feel pretty shitty the whole time because you're full of nerves, maybe depression, maybe anxiety, all that stuff is going through. And if anybody says that it's not, well, maybe they've been in the courtroom a lot of times, I don't know. But I can just see when I see people in the courtroom, you can just look at them. I mean, it's not a good feeling. Yeah, it's a you believe, very, yeah. very, anxiety-laden feeling. And your you defense lawyer couldn't help you, couldn't steer it in the right direction. Well, I will tell you that our courtroom was, there was probably 10 or 15 lawyers that were there part of every day because they were observing how this was go. And my lawyer, whose first name is Steve, he was told by other defense lawyers that he was doing a damn good job and that he did an especially good job in his summary of statements in the windup at the very end. And, and he even said to me, my lawyer, he looked at me when the prosecutor, see, it's all set up. The prosecutor gets to go more often than the defense lawyer, all part of how, again, the chess game is orientated. So my, my defense lawyer said to me, hey, Jim, take a look at how she's presenting her material. And she was literally shaking. She was shaking because she was so nervous 
because there was 20, 25, 30 FBI guys, as well as the U.S. Attorney's Office people all in there that last day watching. I mean, it was, hey, if I wanted to meet lots of federal officials, I could have gone around the room and introduced myself. Oh, hey, hi, nice to see you. They're all over the place. Yeah. Because it was a big case and there were some other cases that were going to follow it. And so it, <laughs> there's, there's, there's pressure in different ways. There's pressure on us because I didn't know it that our odds of winning were next to nothing. I didn't know that. I was told your chances are hard, but I didn't know it's next to nothing. Once I got to Duluth and I started meeting and interviewing 200 different people, finding out, yeah, there's guys guilty, but yeah, there's guys that aren't guilty. And you start in prison. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In prison. In prison. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On my on my vacation, my yeah. holiday, government funded holiday. Okay. Nice how they do that. Yeah, you meet these people, and and I always have to believe that they're telling me the truth, and some probably are not. Okay, and maybe they distort the facts and they twist it to tell themselves that they're really innocent. But there's people that are 100% innocent that went through the whole process. But you where, did. No, that very similar. Very similar. Very okay. similar. Yeah, not that it was set up the same way, no, no. but the idea. I mean, there was a there was a police detective, and he's and he'll be in my book. He was a 34 year veteran, for 34 year veteran of the Tulsa, Oklahoma Police Department, and and he had dealt with all kinds of criminals because he was in the drug side, and he had retired. But along the way, just before he had retired, all of a sudden, there was a, a, a I'm going to call it a setup, just like what my title yeah. is. And, and, and Harold, they basically accused him of taking $2,000, $2,000 off of a cash pile of $13,000 because it was a drug setup. And, and, and here's a guy at the end of his whole career. And the prosecutor in Tulsa said, and Harold knew all the prosecutors. He said, Harold, I can get you a five years probation. Just take the five years probation. Go away, re you know, be done with it all, retire. Harold, who met his wife in church when he was 14. And as he says, they were going steady from that time forward. And now he's 70. And, and his wife moved to Duluth, actually moved there so she could see him on weekends. Harold was offered five years probation. He said, I, 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 I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I never lied. I'm not lying. So he goes to trial. He too had a two-week trial. When he got done with his trial, he felt, man, we did a great job. We're going to win. Uh, he didn't win. And then you could say, what was his sentence? 10 years. The judge gave him 10 years. Taking $2,000. $2,000. What the hell is this all about? And I met him there and he was miserable because he had really just got there six months before me. And they just, and he went to an appeal. I went through an appeal too. Again, separate story. He went through an appeal. He actually then took it to the Supreme Court. Of course, the Supreme Court, I mean, why would we hear that case? So he got absolutely no, nowhere. And fortunately, the first step back, which is a criminal justice change that Trump signed a few years back that helped him get out a little early. So he got out like after only eight years of a 10 year sentence. Unbelievable. 
unbelievable. So you see these things that happen. And I have stories on top of stories on top of stories. And it's like, but in your case, okay, let me just go back to your case, because we are are, are telling your story. And um, so you so you thought you'd win. But you think you're going to win. But there is a degree of skepticism. Yeah, but the way the trial went, you thought you'd win. Honestly, Nabucco, I don't know. I mean, I gotta say that the other people that were observing made comments favorable, but I was a little bit shell-shocked by the whole thing. And and I it was uh, it was it was an eerie experience, very eerie experience. And you know, you find yourself, you're always look, I mean, I would look at the clock all the time and I'm always going, God, when's it gonna be lunchtime so we can get out of here for an hour? And then it would be, when's it going to be 3.30 when, the, when it's over for the day? You just, you just, it's just like you just are watching this. But I, I guess, on. I guess um, judge found you guilty or rather judge influences, just judge influences jury's way of thinking then. Otherwise, well, the, they can't, they, so they, they control that. Although they're bringing jury, in the end, it's judge who's running the show, judge and prosecutor. So jury will Let's find you the way the judge and prosecutors find you. Well, probably because again, let me give you just let me give you let me capture what took place. So first of all, it took 16 hours of deliberations. It wasn't exactly where they went out for three hours and came back and said he's guilty. So it went on for a couple of days, and and they're not sequestered. They get to go home. They go home, but the judge, of course, says, don't talk to anybody about the case. Okay, so so then all of a sudden we're called back into the courtroom because they now have a verdict. Now, in my case, there's another individual that was at the trial, one of the companies that I brought, and his attorney, who was from Boston, she prided herself on being a juror specialist. She kept track of the jury during the course of the whole two weeks, she had a card and she'd make notations on the expressions, the feelings that she felt from what these people were showing. When the jury came back in, there were two ladies that were crying. So as she said, why were they crying? They weren't crying because they were sad that it was over. They weren't crying for any other reason in her words, then there was pressure going on in the courtroom. We've been here too long. It's a Friday. We want to go home. We don't want to have to come back on a Monday. Come on. And then somebody in that jury room says that famous line, oh, he's got to be guilty of something. Our government wouldn't do this otherwise. Right. And so those two ladies are crying because they were holding out. They felt I was innocent. Otherwise, why are they crying, right? They're crying. The judge gives his orders before they go out into deliberations. And if you can understand everything that the judge says when he's reading the instructions for an hour, it's impossible. I mean, he's, and of course, do they have a certain vocabulary that they use? So it's, you listen, I'm sitting there listening. And again, I'm a little disorientated because of the whole two weeks. But if I'm on the jury, I'm going to wonder, do you mind if I nap for about a half an hour? Because I don't know what you're telling me. 
you know, you got to this, you got to that, you got to whatever he's all saying, it can be very confusing. And now you go into the jury room and then, you know, I guess there's movies out there that depict what goes on in the jury room, but we've re-pieced this together after the verdict that came down. Yeah. And this through these the lawyers that were there, just the yeah. beliefs, if you will, from all of their experience. Yeah. So now, if anybody wants to have an interesting experience, then all they got to do is go out and call your local FBI and ask them to create a crime. And then you can get indicted and go through the process like I did. <laughs> and I'm being humorous. You know, it's, it's crazy. There's enough criminals and crime out there. I, I'll bet you there's been a crime committed in London since you and I started talking today. They're all over the place. Same here. We don't need to go out and do what what they what they do sometimes set people up so why do they do that why don't they go after real criminals because it's too much hard work exactly that is correct that's a belief if uh, many people have said that to me because it's a lot of hard work again go get the 550 billion dollars of medicare fraud it's out there just line up people all over miami it's really heavy in the Miami area. Well, you know, I don't know. You know, it could be, could be, it could be tough. I mean, I'm not here to, people will say that they believe 99% of the FBI that they're honest and ethical. Yeah. Uh, not many of us are going to believe that. And this is a good example. Well, I mean, James Comey was fired. Right. You know, the free, not, I mean, you are, I mean, <laughs> You were investigated under Mueller. He wasn't fired because I mean, I, I mean, he wasn't scrutinized. But James right. Comey, who succeeded him, he was fired. He was fired. That's correct. Yeah. So yeah. now at last we've got, hopefully, an FBI director who is a bit more conscientious. Well, yeah, you know, opinions vary on that, of okay. course. Okay, yeah. we can only yeah. hope. Right, you can only hope, but I mean, as you know, it's amazing what role politics plays in all of this, right? Politics and political situations, there's various beliefs again. We saw what Trump had to go through with, with just man, from the day that he announced that he was running for, for president, which was June of 2015, the press did a total rotation on him adversely. And he was, always in the press in New York, but all of a sudden he's, he's the bad dude and it never subsided. It just kept on it's still going today. Right. right. So going today. back to you. So, um, so how did you, how did you cope with all this emotionally? So you you had, you believed that you'd be found innocent because you had right. committed the crime and right. you found guilty right. and you saw two jury members crying. Obviously, yep. they thought you were innocent too, and um, okay, but they had to—they overcome, and uh, so you found guilty. And how did you feel that? How did you feel? This is going to sound rather strange. So we got done with that in the courtroom. I had a stand, like everybody does, and of course, then the, then they read that you're found guilty, and you just kind of go—you're kind of numb. You're kind of numb. You're kind of stunned. And then from there, we went over to a bar 
<laughs> like going to a pub. And from that moment, I had this incredible feeling of relaxation because all of it was done. There was a finality to it. Even though I didn't win, it was done. It was final. Okay. And, and, and I didn't really understand at the time that I could go back and appeal because I went to trial. If you don't go to trial, you, you, you don't go through the appeal process. So, but I got taught that soon thereafter, but I felt incredible relief. And as a few people said that were in our gathering, all of a sudden I became animated. Whereas for two weeks, I was really quiet during the, yeah, like, yeah, I bet. off of the trial. I was just yeah. almost like in my own little trance. Yeah, so yeah, I yeah. felt a sense of relief. Now, I didn't know what the sentence was going to be, right? And a couple other guys in my case got sentenced before me. But when the trial was over, the verdict was pronounced. I had a feeling of relief. And, and I knew that, okay, this part at least is done. But we didn't know what it was going to be at the sentencing, which was still another three months away. So then I had, of course, go back to Boston for that as well. And how did you spend your time between then and the sentencing? Three months is a long time. It's like waiting for, I don't know, a guillotine to come down on you, isn't it? That's a good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I really feel bad for guys that get massively long sentences because it's, yeah, it's a crummy feeling. Um, I did things I did things here. I, I, um, I was involved in a couple other business situations. So I kept working on those. So you didn't lose your businesses. Clients didn't turn their backs on you. You know, that's interesting. I had a few people that called that I dealt with because, again, I a lot of capital formation and capital consulting, which um, was what I had done. And I had one person specifically that I can remember. In fact, he was a doctor. He calls me and said, hey, I read this article about this guy named Jim Prangy. And I read this about him. Is that, is that, do you know that guy? I said, hell yeah, that's me. And he said, oh, okay, good. Now let's talk about our business stuff. <laughs> he just went right through it. You know, he didn't run away. He didn't do anything like that at all. And I was probably surprised that that didn't happen because that certainly can happen. So I kept doing things, if you will, in some respects, you got to, you get your house in order, as they call it. And you, but I was working on things right on through. That was the end of March, April. And I didn't go to Duluth until December 20th. So I had several months where I was still involved doing things. But didn't you say, I mean, so you hadn't quite lost your license, fin financial, um, financial, Financial, what do you call it? Is it um, uh, underwriting, brokerage, license? Securities. Securities. Okay. Securities license. Securities, Securities license. Securities yeah. license. You hadn't yeah. lost it yet. Yeah, for, well, I, you know, the, the whole other separate question, and that would be that I really had not had it for several years, only because I moved into a different field. And so there's, there's a system of how you have to place that license. And so it's not so easy to do. So it really ultimately expired, but that was okay because I wasn't doing what I had been doing okay, the way okay, I okay, had okay, been okay. raising right. capital companies. 
I was working as a consultant for these other companies. So it was, it was different. Um, this is interesting, but I mean, it's so heartening, isn't it? And despite what the state tried to do, they, they basically tried to ruin you, but your clients <laughs> didn't give a damn. There's truth to that. There's truth. I did certainly, I didn't talk to everybody, um, but I didn't have anybody that said, don't ever talk to me again, go away. Uh, no, it was actually, that part was, was interesting. And hopefully it's because I've always tried to develop good, solid relationships. I tried to be open and honest with people when I'm dealing with them. And hopefully that all, hopefully that all helped. So, so in December, isn't it, that um, this, the, the, the trial was over, uh, um, how many months did you have to wait? Um, so the sentencing, yeah, sentencing was two months later, was it? It was going to be two months later, but it got postponed because my attorney had a personal matter and he had to have it postponed because he wasn't going to be able to be there. And so okay. they delayed it. And then they really, let's see, April, May, June, July. Then it, it took place in July. And then, so I had to go back to Boston for that. And then even though I was sentenced, you still don't know where you're going. There's still another process. But the 30-month yeah. sentence, was that what you expected? Or was it more or was it less? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Nabucco. So by that time, my two co-defendants that had not gone to trial, both of which were attorneys who basically said they were not guilty until they were told by the prosecutor that if they go to trial, they could be facing a seven to 10 year sentence if they lost. Now, seven to 10 years, a long time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So both of them, both of them, uh, you make family decisions. And you basically, as one of them said to me, the one I worked with for 20 years, he said, Jim, I only lied in that case one time. The only time I ever lied is when I had to go back to Boston, sit in front of the judge and change my plea from guilty. I'm sorry, change my <laughs> plea from not guilty to guilty. And yeah. then, of course, the judge admonished him. Oh, you're an attorney. You should have known better. You should have this. You should have that. Okay. You take the lashing from the judge. Yeah. And then his sentencing, his sentencing and the other attorney sentencing, they both were sentenced to 18 months. So yeah. we were anticipating that I could potentially be in that same range. However, I'm the bad guy because I went to trial. Right. I challenged the system. Yeah. So there's a thing that we call the trial tax. Yeah. The trial tax is where they put an additional tax on you because sure. you actually them. Yeah. So the judge literally, the judge literally sat there in the courtroom when he's sentencing me and he says, you know, Mr. Prangy, I know you're this, but you were the ringleader. Oh, I was the ringleader. You were the ringleader of this group. And for that, just like I'm going to do for that, I'm going to give you two more points, just like that. Two points. That means he took my sentence from 18 months to 30 just by his little simple act of doing that. So, and of course I looked at it and I had plenty of thoughts, but I didn't say anything because there are stories where people say something to the judge that hurt them because of the comments that they made. You gotta be careful. But it was, my attorney said he couldn't believe the judge did that. 
And he told me later that the prosecutors even were surprised. They themselves didn't want that to happen. They didn't see why he would do that, but he did because he's the judge. Do prosecutors make so, a recommendation? Uh, they have what is called, there's a, there's a pre-trial interview where they formulate, uh, there's there, the uh, probation office formulates a big report on everybody, yeah. right? Each individual person that is going through the process. And then they, they, they evaluate, they, they talk to a family member. They in my case, they talked to my wife. I think I had a three and a half hour discussion with the lady. She's extremely nice, but they put all this information together and then probation makes a recommendation to the judge. At the same time, the prosecutors make recommendations too. Yeah. And the recommendations for me were 18 months to 24, 18 months to 24. The low end, again, the other guys in my case got the low end of the sentencing range. Not only did I get the high end, but I got the two extra points that put me up even higher. So to answer your question, I wasn't expecting to get that high. Now, when you get to but it could have been eight, eight years, six to eight years. Well, that that's what the prosecutor your friend with. Yeah, it could have been. There's there's certain terms uh, that that they could have uh, thrown in there. Is a term called intended loss. It's yeah. a term that they use liberally, and that allows them to give even longer sentences. Yes, but I was only I was only the ringleader. <laughs> really. Okay. 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 Was, you you kind of you reach a point, Nabucco, where you just kind of go, you can't believe what took place the whole time. I mean, but weren't you prepared get, for what? Weren't you prepared for years, six or eight years? I'm sorry. Weren't you prepared for six or eight years? Because that's what the prosecutor threatened your friend with, wasn't it? Well, they did. Yeah. But that was principally because they were lawyers. And they, they, they never did that to me, surprisingly, but they were lawyers. And so they used that, that you knew, there's a big term, you knew or should have known. You knew or should have known, right, should have known. How do you know when it's all set up and it's all planned that they did? So I never bought their term, you knew or should have known. And that was brought up, in fact, Chris, the same guy that called at the beginning of, of our podcast today, he even used that term. Well, Jim, you knew or should have known. Chris, how the hell am I supposed to know? <laughs> Come on. But see, they because they said it, that must mean it's okay. Because they said it. So, so was it so, more than you expected or less? 30 months? 30 months was more than I expected. Okay. And right away, I can picture right now, I'm standing there and I'm going 30 months. Hmm, 30 months. 30 months. That's two and a half years. That's a okay. long time. Okay. Right? It's not a long time for people that had gotten 10 years. Yeah. But it's a long time. Um, yeah. It was, you know, I, I wasn't expecting that. Okay. So um, after they gave you six, six months before they sent you to the prison. Yeah. The sentencing took place really three months after the trial. Yeah. And then I was supposed to go to Duluth about six weeks before I did. But for various reasons, we actually requested an extension and the judge granted it. He granted it, which was good. And so then I had to be there by 10 o'clock the morning of December 20th. So and they emphasized, don't be a minute late. Be there on time. 
So, so you had about six months, five months to kind of put your, how, put your life in order before you serve the sentence. That's right. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you don't really know what to expect. I, I, you don't know what to expect, of course. I suppose I was fortunate because Rich, the same attorney that I worked with for those 20 years, he actually got sentenced to go to the same place and he got there three months before me. So he could give me information, if you will, of what to expect. Because again, you don't know. You don't know until you get there. And you think, you, sometimes you think the worst, like, oh my God, you know, is it, is, is it, is it dangerous? Is it uh, multiple things? You don't know what to expect. And there was 800, just over 800 guys that were there. And what so, was it like to, um, to be sent to prison for something you, that you didn't do? Well, kind of, yeah, my, my element was to try to see, well, what can I do with this now that this has happened that I can use favor? Didn't you feel <laughs> anger, sense of injustice, sense of being wronged? Oh, yeah. I, you know, I wasn't so much angry, but the sense of injustice, right? The sense of injustice, particularly when I had read about these other cases in Boston, the, the, the individual Aaron Schwartz, who I referred to. The yeah, but you, Jim, come on, you didn't do anything wrong, but you know that it was set oh. up and you thought you could fight it, but you, but, you know, you just couldn't fight the whole system. And yeah, you, had exactly. up, you had to swallow it. And the sense of being wronged is awful, isn't it? It is. I mean, it, 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 it is. In, in no, no matter when, if anybody reads stories about people that were wrongfully convicted, it's wrong. There's no doubt about it. It's wrong. You don't it's, think it would happen to that. you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could say I was thankful it was only a 30-month sentence. Because, yes. yeah, I could say that. The first yeah. couple of months, there's an adjustment. But I, I, did, I wasn't angry at it at all. I just felt I'm going to, as people said, this is an opportunity to work on yourself. So I went into it with the idea of reading, of working out, of meeting guys, of interviewing guys, people I would never meet otherwise. Fascinating really? people. That's what you set yeah. out to do. You didn't think that did. there's got to be a way out of this. You didn't feel that. I'm innocent. I didn't. No. You know, it's interesting. There's a guy named Conrad Black, Sir Conrad yeah, Black. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know the name, right? Yes, yes. Newspaper tycoon, isn't it? And he can, for whatever reason, I used to read his stories about him as well as others that have gone through the incarceration process. Yeah. And I always remembered, and I thought about this while I was there. Conrad Black, when they interviewed him, oh, how terrible it must have been, or how, how, how this or how that. And Conrad said, quite the contrary. I actually really enjoyed it. I didn't have, nobody could call me. I could focus on my writing, my reading. I choose to call people when I want to. I helped teach a lot of people, if you will, while I was incarcerated. I think he was four years. He said, I actually really enjoyed it. So in some respects, I tried to adapt that same type of philosophy to try to make the most out of it. First couple of months, that wasn't easy. But somebody sat me down and said, let me tell you, this, this is, now that you're here, you're here. You're not going anywhere. And you're here, so now you work on yourself. All the different ways that you work on yourself. 
And, and so I did, I did. And, and again, I didn't know when I started, I was going to interview a few people. I told myself that I'd have people, I would say, can I, you mind if we sit down and I just ask you about your case? Almost everybody agreed to do that except for two guys. And they were clearly scared. They didn't want to get into their case at all because they didn't know if I would use it some way that would affect them. But everybody else I could sit down with or I could walk and talk with about their case, they would tell me. And then I would get back and write up a summary, if you will, of that discussion that we had. So basically, I got to meet a lot of people. Because but you didn't of have reaching. your own room. You shared the room, didn't you? You shared your cell with other people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really like a community college. There are open rooms. There's no doors on the rooms. And there's two bunk beds in each room. So there were four people in each room. And each, each person had a locker in the room. And it's actually very... Right? There's no one snoring all night, preventing, preventing you to sleep, for instance. There are those sleep apnea machines that various people had yeah. that they would hook themselves up to. Um, there are some, it, 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 you, you adjust. Now, there are some noises, certainly, but you adjust. It was actually quite comfortable. The, uh, I think I mentioned to you previous how cold it was sometimes. We had, we had seven days of 50 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. That's However, 10 that degrees, apparently. That's 10, 10, 10 degrees Celsius, yeah. 10 degrees. Yeah, I mean, minus, it was super minus cold. 10 degrees Celsius, yeah. Minus 10, okay. Yeah. Super cold, but the dorm, the rooms, very comfortable. I mean, nobody suffered. They, 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 and, and the food was good. Um, so the But you didn't fear. You had no faith in the system. So did you have fear that they may not release you after 30 months? I mean, as it turned out, you only had to serve the half the sentence, I understand. But uh, didn't you have fear that they might kind of screw it again and kind of frame you and keep you? keep you longer? Well, that's a good question because you never know what's going on. And when you no. see others, situations that happen and they really control you, they are putting you into what we call a human warehouse. And they talk about rehabilitation. No, it's a, it's a warehouse of people. It's not a rehabilitation center. And so when you see what some situations that have happened to certain people that are there, that's a good question. You can scratch your head and wonder, are they going to screw with me? Or are they going to delay my sentence? Um, but I, di I didn't focus on that at all. Good. The thought occurred. Yeah, the thought occurred, Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Yep. It's all about positive thinking. A lot of positive thinking. You know, it's very, very much so. I agree. There was a guy that I met early who was there seven years, and he was positive as positive could be. And it was because of what he read, what he watched. He just kept putting positives into his head. And he was looking very forward to when he was going to be released. And many people are depressed. A lot. And how did They're it depressed. affect your family? The, 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 fortunate, the fortunate and unfortunate. The fortunate thing is my kids were not in grade school or high school or college. They had been through that. There's a massive effect when the kids are younger, adverse, adversely. My kids, they would come to visit. Now, I, 
we're almost six hours away from Duluth. So it's a long trip. So they would come or my wife would come on occasion, but there was an effect. There was a, absolutely. I mean, my, my daughter was here when the, when the FBI did their, uh, their uh, pickup of me and she was just crying her eyes out because it's a scary situation. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it sticks with you. Uh, today, I will tell you, tomorrow morning, I could possibly look out the driveway at six in the morning and I could have a flashback and I could say, geez, where's those six cars? They're not here today. It sticks with you. It really does. So there's, yeah, there's definitely some adverse effects from it. Yeah. And the longer sentences is, is worse, of course. And what were the, what did you miss the most? When I was gone? When you were in prison, or, yeah. When I was in prison, what did I miss the most? Well, I suppose that, you know, you develop a camaraderie with, again, I equate it to college. I really, really do. I equate a lot of things that took place to college. You make friends, you have camaraderie, you know you're away from home, and you enjoy your group. And we had a group of five or six guys. We probably met five out of seven days. I mean, every every week we would do, have you stayed get together. In touch with them. Yeah. Unfortunately, two of them have since died. Two of them okay. have passed away. But I do stay in touch with them, and they have become probably my best friends because they've been through it. They understand it. And so- And they've been wrongfully convicted too. Um, I'm gonna say that they, they would, cause I know their stories really well. Mm -hmm. I would say that what happened to them didn't need to happen. One guy, yes, he was behind on his taxes, but it wasn't a big amount. It was $60,000. And they just pursued it vigorously. And then they charged him with things that they withdrew so they could get him out of the, this is the guy that was in Thailand. They had to charge him with a money laundering charge to get him out of Thailand. And as soon as he was back in the States, then they dropped that charge because Thailand would not have allowed him to be extradited. So um, there's, 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 yeah. Now the one of the guys that has passed away whose name is Jim Barda. This is an individual that was, he had a most incredible story and he was going through an appeal just like me. And he read my appeal papers and I read his. And he said to me, he said, our cases are very similar. He was set up. And again, he was 74 at the time, massively successful man, but nobody knew it. But I ended up getting to know him really well we both worked in the kitchen together, cleaning tables. For 12 cents an hour. <laughs> yeah. So, so Jim and I became good friends. And, and believe me when I tell you, Jim was a billionaire with the B, a billionaire. Mm -hmm. And people would have thought that he was poverty alley. He was unbelievable. I mean, just really low key. My son went to work for him after Jim got out and moved to Nebraska. And that, again, a whole separate story. But Jim's case, they charged him. Um, they incarcerated him for 21 months, very similar to mine. It was a setup, a Los Angeles uh, pharmaceutical business arrangement. He was in the pharmaceutical business. And 
all of a sudden his appeal, something happened that next to never happens. And eight months after he was at Duluth, all of a sudden one morning, he goes and sees one of my friends and then they came to get me. Jim had gotten an email. Not only did he win his appeal, but the appellate court ordered him to be released within 10 seconds of reading what their decision was. They said, this is unbelievable prosecutorial abuse. He is to be released tomorrow morning. You know, send him home. The lawyers that represented him that were from Chicago said that in the 35 years that they've been practicing, they've never seen this happen, where the government actually released somebody. And he had paid a fine of $125,000. He had legal fees of 1.5 million. Of course, the 1.5 million, that's gone. But they did send him back a check for the 125,000 for his fine. But outrageous government behavior again, overzealous prosecution. And of course, what would the prosecutor say? Oh, sorry, Jim, didn't mean it, see ya. I'm going on to my next case. That's the unfortunateness of the system. So you've become close there friends with, with at least four or five people and, at least, and the two people passed away, unfortunately. So the three will remain your closest friend for the rest of your life. Oh, for sure. I'm just, I mean, one of them I talk to wow. almost every day. Yeah, we've, we've become very, very good friends because when you're in that setting, it's just like of if course. you and I went, went for a coffee every day for two hours, we get to know each other pretty well. And so you're in the setting and you get to know these guys really well. You get to, one of them had nine kids and one of them this and that. And you just get to know all these things about the person and you get close, definitely. And it's painful when one of them leaves. I mean, when I left, I could feel the emotions of leaving friends. I really could. It, it you know, not everybody would say that, believe me. Some could say totally different. They can't wait to leave. But, but it's quite a story, you know, isn't it? That you've made your best friends. You're, 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 you're 70. I know you don't want me to remind you of your age. Sorry, but <laughs> just put it in context. You think you've made your best 59, friends. <laughs> 59, that's right. I, I did. I did. You made your Most best friends people. of your Absolutely. life in the 30 yeah. months that you were in prison. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll give you one quick story. The person from Thailand, his wife, who did nothing, she signed a tax return. She ended up getting 44 months, just like he did, 44 months. Um, and she essentially, as he told me, I went to visit them a few years ago for the first time. And, and we were up till two o'clock in the morning. And he told me, he said, my wife has never talked to anybody as openly as we did, the three of us that night. And the biggest reason is certainly because he and I were friends, but because I get it. I've been through yeah. it. And she, when you go talk to somebody that's not been through it, they could say, oh, I know how you feel. No, you don't. You no. have no idea how you no. feel because you haven't been through it. No. Like everything, right? So you know, I, I uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Brian Rose, who taught us how to um, podcast, you know, the host of London yes. Real, he often quotes this man, Jacko, yeah, who said, Jacko. Yeah. Whenever you, whenever you're, I mean, 
um, um, you know, when the worst thing happens to you, think that it's good. Say to yourself, it's good. Say, yeah, say it's good. Good. I mean, it's an experience that you, you, you're stuck in it. So try to make yeah. the best of it. Yeah. I'd say and that actually, yeah. And there's a short clip of me saying, good. Anything that's happened, it's good. You know, um, um, yeah. you nearly got run over, but it's good because you're at least <laughs> breathing. You're at least breathing. You know, it helps you find that there's still fight in you. So would you say that? So, yeah, I would say, I mean, I, I mean, people that know me, they, I mean, I've, I've said this statement and some people are stunned and they would say, oh, you, it, it was really challenging, right? You didn't like it at all. It was incredibly, it was bad conditions or it was this. And I will always say I had a damn, I had a really good time. It was, a, it was a, a unique experience and I had a very good time. I had an enjoyable time. I met all these hundreds of guys. I, I, as you, as I've shared, I've interviewed 200 of them. Um, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. It wouldn't happen in the real world because you, nobody has the time. Everybody's busy. Everybody's busy, busy, whatever it is they're doing, they're busy. Yeah, Here but at the same time, Jay, you were successful as an um, equity financial, equity financier and weren't you afraid that you might lose your client base? The thought was there, but again, I, I was, if there was one fortune, it was because I was a little older and I wasn't again in my 30s or 40s or 50s. Okay. Because, okay. Those are, you know, you know, that can really affect your career adversely. And so I was a little bit older, so I didn't have that fear or that concern, so to speak. And um, I tried to go into it with, I'm going to make the best of it, right? Make the best of it. Everything's good. And that's how I felt. And again, I, I, I worked out significantly. Um, I, I read, I mean, the first month I read 44 books. The first month I was there. Now, I didn't do anything near that. Overall, I read 100 books while I was there. But things change. You start getting other activities going. And that first month, you know, it was kind of nice to just be by yourself and reading in your own little world. So you didn't get lonely. No, no, I didn't no. get lonely. And I, no, I, I didn't. And people do. I know that. But no, it was, it was nice. I had, I had some friends that did come to visit. Again, it was nice to have immediate family that came to visit. But I know guys that were their they wives reliable? Came your friends week. and your family were they reliable? Did they come and see you every time? Every time they could come and see you? When they could, but again, because of the distance, yeah, right? Again, six hours away. Oh my that, god! That created a little bit of. But it was. But it again. I. Uh, yeah, it was. It was a unique experience to say the least. Notwithstanding all the things we've talked about, but just the pure experience by itself, um, I I can't I can't sit here and say, oh, it was. I mean, some people would say whatever they choose to say. When you're at a camp, as what this was, it's just low security. It's low everything, and and it was. And there's crazy stuff that goes on. There are crazy stories that I could that I could tell of things that had happened, but it was. It was uh, an, a, a unique experience that I worked to the best of my ability to make the most of. 
And what was it like to be released after 30, after 18 months, isn't it? You were released after 18 months. What was it like to have freedom? Yeah, that was interesting too. I, uh, they have a, they have a driver. You, you can't, you know, you can't leave the compound unless there's a medical reason or you're leaving. Yeah. And so I had to check out your bags are packed. You check out with one of the guards. In this case, he was one of the nicest guys. And then I got a ride to the bus station. And, but when I left, this was, this was unique because I'm sitting in the activity center with a few friends and I was squeezing one last interview in with a lawyer who had recently got there. And then I heard my name over the loudspeaker that it was, you know, time to go to R and D. That's the area you go to check out. And there were a number of guys that were lined up wishing me well, as I was walking from the activity center to the R&D center. And it got emotional, uh, particularly with a couple of guys. It got, it got, they were emotional and I was emotional. Um, I, I'm leaving. This, this is not going to reoccur. This is a unique experience. They don't, they don't offer you visitation rights to be able to go back and have lunch there sometime. You're there and then you're gone. So it was, it was, it, it, it was a, a hurt to, to leave good friends. Uh, but then you're also going, okay, I'm done with this. Now I have to, now I get to go to the halfway house, but the halfway house was in this very troubled neighborhood. And yeah, that's what I know. Really, they don't let you out, you know, out into the open immediately. They only no. give you freedom just a little bit by little bit. So little from bit there, by little yeah, bit. when you were there, you were released of, of the prison. That was in June, 8th, 8th of June. From the way you came home and, and as a completely free, completely free man after the end of the parole, it took six months. Right. You, cruel, you isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, and in each case, it's different. It depends upon the situation and, and the yeah. time and your sentence. But the element is like with me, uh, the first three weeks, I really couldn't go anywhere. And, and, it, and, and, you, and then you wish you were still back where you were. You go, why the heck did I leave? I should have stayed there because yeah. it was much more freedom. It was a 70 acre compound versus a halfway house, which has got 30 rooms in it. And you're in a room. And, and um, so that was not an enjoyable experience. No. Um, and then, then you're supposed to get a job. So you get a job. So I had a job. Now picture this. I lived an hour plus away from the halfway house. So I was approved to leave the halfway house at seven in the morning, drive just over an hour to my office here to work out of my office here at my home so I could get back in the car before six, so I could be back in the halfway house at seven that night, right? Okay. I'm driving home, but then yeah. I've got to go stay in the halfway house overnight. That went on for a couple of months. And then finally, uh, yeah, then finally I was released to pure home confinement. Yeah. And then that was- but still confinement. Right, some people that are in home confinement, they are told that they can't leave the house except to go put the garbage out, or they can go to the grocery store once a week. But they have See, to call in. See, none of this makes sense because you're not a, you're not a, 
you're not a what, what do they call you? You're not a murderer, or you're not a burglar, or you need to fight color crime. Exactly so, right. None of it no makes sense. sense. No, it makes no sense. And when you think about it, is it better to have the government paying for the funded vacation, as I love to call it? Or would they be better to put people out on home confinement so they can actually work and bring in tax revenue? Yeah, and there's no reason to confine because what they said you, you did was, you know, defraud people of money. Right. Yeah. 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 It, it, the whole thing was crazy, right? The whole thing was crazy. Let me just make this comment. My One of my co-defendants, one of the lawyers, his mother and father, he grew up in suburban Milwaukee. His mother was, a, was an assistant U.S. attorney in a Milwaukee office for over 20 years. His dad was a criminal defense attorney. When his mom found out that the Boston office was prosecuting her son, he couldn't believe it because no. she was number two in Milwaukee. Yeah. It's like, what the hell are they doing? Yeah. Right. I mean, he had all this experience of growing up in this particular system. So, and we've also been told that if this would have been in a different office, not Boston, they never would have prosecuted this. They wouldn't have done it. But Boston's got its own reputation. And then flashback to what I mentioned with the U.S. attorney wanting to become governor and, and then being connected into the, the attorney general for the country. You know, you know how things are. There's strange connections and lots of things that happen in the world. It's so political, so, in other words. A lot of political Exactly. And, and so, and we felt that way more than one time we talked about, we feel like a political prisoner. We, you know, most of us were conservatives and uh, who knows, right? You, so could, you could put finally, people you are freed of um, home confinement, allowed to do pretty much whatever you wanted to do. Right. So basically it was, it was almost uh, from, from, ja from October, no, from December 11, when you were arrested, to December right. 2017, so it's six years. Right, and that, that included because I got, on, I got out of home confinement December of 2015, yeah. and then you, I still had two years of probation. probation. Yeah, yeah. So now to your Which point- Which is horrible feeling. It's like something, I mean, I mean, something stuck in your throat, isn't it? No, it is. And they, and they, <laughs> That whole probation thing is a whole nother game and situation, if you will. And again, so many stories that come to mind. It's amazing. It all depends upon who your probation officer is. If you get a really good one, they make it easy. If you get one that's challenging, they don't make it easy. And they, they screw so with they can you. ruin everything and, for you if they wanted to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's guys that have gone back to prison because oh of some God. stupid violation that has happened. Not very often, but there, there's one, without getting into the story, there's one case where they made it, this probation officer made it so difficult for my friend, so difficult. I mean, they even took a job away from him that he had just to keep screwing with him. They denied him to go live in an apartment that he had picked out. They denied him to pick up his wife to go to church. She had to take a bus. He couldn't stop and pick her up. I mean, all strange, strange things to make it difficult. 
but they tell you that they're there to rehabilitate you? No. <laughs> they want you to stay in the system. It's profitable. It's a seventy billion dollar a year industry. Keep so these people you, in the system. How did you feel when it was all the weight was lifted off your shoulders? I felt great. I felt miserable two months before it was finally done because my probation officer was literally screwing with me um, for various reasons. And when that was done, it was a great feeling. It was like enough of the bullshit. It was like enough of the, of the, of the games going on that they um, have a way of playing. Did you have a party to mark the occasion? You know, that's a good, very good question because we talked about it, we talked about it, and we talked about it, but we never did it. Yes. <laughs> we, did, we talked yeah. about it, but we didn't ultimately do it. But there are people that do. They have nice big parties that are done, done with the system. You know, but then there's people, a lot of people, they don't ever want to talk about what happened yeah, to I them. Know. They I just, know. they want to just move on. Yeah. Me, as you can tell, I'm a little different. I, and you have I to have relive it every time thoughts. you talk about it, haven't you? I do, but I'm yeah. okay with that. doesn't bother me at all. It did bother me the first year or two, even after probation, where it was like, I just, you know, you, you get these, sometimes just a thought that it's like, ah, why the hell? I mean, look what, look what they did. I mean, really, it's six years. Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. just went December of 11 till December of 17. Yeah. It's six years that they screw with you yeah and it becomes really costly so yeah. and how and, and, has it, it changed you are you a different i'm man? sorry are, are you a different man now from you uh six years ago where it's, it's two years so, so, so nine years ago isn't it since 2011 right no i believe so i believe i, I huh. on the on the whole system i'm i'm 500 more insightful versus being a, na a naive, gullible person at the inception of this whole legal system. I mean, I have put thousands of hours into things since this all started. Yeah. Just a massive amount of time, massive. But it's, but it's my history. I've had certain situations along the way where I do a ton of research, gather facts, try to be on with the facts. So the same situation here. So you're wiser, no? Wiser is a good word. Absolutely wiser. Um, I've always been tolerant, and and I and I always try to listen well. But I'm gonna like to think that those are even heightened more so. Just yeah, the I idea noticed that in your podcast, you're a good listener as a podcaster. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah, that. thank. You. And there's a good I, energy I in your podcast shows. Right. Yeah. Thank you. And I I I I want to continue that because. I'd love to be able to get hundreds of people to tell their stories about this is exactly what happened to me, you know, meaning me, that individual person, this is what happened. And are you scared that the system might come and get you again? That goes through my head. That goes through my head. It, it did more so a few years back. It did more so when we really started on this heavily, more, more heavily. And then I got away from it for a couple mm -hmm. of years. Mm -hmm. now, now we're, I don't want to say almost done, but almost done. And um, yeah, because you don't, I mean, look, right. We don't know. Look at the things that happen out there. They go, they raid this guy or they raid that guy. I mean, I'm just, I'm just a small potato in the big game here of the, of politics and the system. And 
I just, I just don't feel it's right that they did what they did and that's okay. I just, I don't, I don't want to see this happen to other people get set up in a sting operation. Yeah, I thought about this. I thought, you know, I mean, is there any danger of you speaking out? Is there any danger that the system might come and get you? But, you know, that's why I looked at um, Robert Mueller's um, um, background and Jimmy and uh, James Comey and how he got fired. And we've got someone, you've got someone called Christopher Ray? Christopher Ray. Ray, yeah. He looks, he's, he's a completely different character, at least from the photograph that I've seen. And his background is very different from his t- two predecessors. And, and that's he's fair. A, he, I, and he's a, uh, he's a Trump appointee, isn't he? He is. Yeah. That is true. Yeah, so that is true. Do you think you've got a bit more faith in, in the FBI? Yeah, you would hope. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing, again, what, what, what I've shared and what I know, there's there's a degree of skepticism, no question about it. Uh, again, that that personal elevation for careers unfortunately afflicts various people. It doesn't afflict certain people, but it does. And if you get caught up into one that it's all about their career, that can be troublesome. So I, I you know I'm not here to know going forward on on any of this. Uh, it's, it's almost as though nothing surprises me and I'm sure plenty of other people too. You, 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 uh, you learn to appreciate things. I think that's another way to look at it. You'll learn to appreciate. I mean, I actually really appreciated where I was when I was in Duluth. It's beautiful there in the summer. It's just really nice. And <laughs> it's a very short summer, but it, it, it's nice. And so you, you go through these appreciation things. You know, it's like a care for people. Uh, more so instead of caught up in the, you know, the rat race world. Again, you and I have advanced beyond our 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. And we've experienced all of that with things that we've done in the past. Yeah, but I haven't like experienced what you family. have. And how's your relationship with, with your wife and your family members? Has that changed? No, I'd say it, it I, I, I mean, I, I'd say that it's, it's been consistent. Right. Okay. I've been married a lot of years. I would say it's consistent. Um, I believe that there was even on on her side there was an enjoyment of a separation mm-hmm. that took place because then you can kind of each do your own thing. Yeah. And so I think that was beneficial. I think it had an effect on my son. The first time he came to visit me, I can just tell by the expression in his face. It was like, whoa! It was just a weird feeling. These guys are all sitting around with their green. We all had like, you, you feel like you're in the military. These green you couldn't uniforms touch him. That you could, you, could you could you touch him? Could you could you hug him? Could you, you shake could, his hands? You could do a hug. Okay. Yeah, you could do that. Certainly, shake hands. You could do a hug. Uh, there was always two guards there, and it depended which ones they were. Oh my um, god! But yeah, privacy. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's again. The system, it's like they got their little rule book and some of them are so systematized to follow every rule instead of understanding, hey, let's have a little bit of life flexibility here. But most of them were pretty good yeah, that, that, were, that worked there. So I, I don't think anybody goes through this without having some adverse effect on family. Um, and, and I think some, and some good effects too that take place. Uh, they may not realize it at the time. 
but over time that they may realize it more so. So have you had a wrongfully convicted man on your show, on your podcast? Uh, have I? Yeah. Well, so far, so far, there's one person that wants to do it, but he's still in the system. He's okay. still in that probation. He isn't going to go anywhere near doing anything to put yeah. himself out there until yeah. he's out of the system. I would have definitely have had Jim Barta on because he had agreed to, yeah, I talked to him about, hey, if I ever interviewed you, you know, like on tape kind mm -hmm. of thing. Oh, sure, I'll do that. But he's not around anymore. No, no. And another friend, Dan, Dan also, he'd have been on the podcast. He got, he got screwed. This is a man with nine kids from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, but he too, unfortunately passed. And uh, so nothing you can do there. But there's others. Um, I really, again, I'll get into doing more podcasts once I get through finalization of, of the book. Yeah. Because everything, as you know, Nabucco, it all takes time. Yeah. Everything takes time. And I don't want to, I want to get it done because it's been going on for so many years. Right. It's almost there. And what were you hoping to achieve through the publication of the book? What is the main yeah. thrust of the book? Well, the main thrust is really my story of the, of the, of the setup, you know, the wrongful conviction. And there's, yeah little side statements that's on the book cover that says from finance to federal prison, mm -hmm. how the FBI creates crimes and the prosecutors play along. Mm -hmm. And then my journey through wrongful conviction. So I would like to say, and this is no, this is, this is no compelling statement. Others have said the same thing. Hey, if this can help one or two or three or four or five people, then that's terrific. If we can help okay. some people from this, that can get a sense, an example, I wanna interview some wives that have had the experience of their husband being gone, uh, you know, and just, just like I did with my son, getting really into them and, you know, how did you feel? What, what took place? What did you do, et cetera? Um, my primary, I, I, I'm not here to suggest to know, we know that it's a social media world these days. I don't know how the social media can help with marketing the book. Obviously, you don't sell any books unless people buy the book. And so I'd certainly like to sell. And my original goal was I would love to try to recover my legal fees. Right. I'd love to try to recover my legal fees because I didn't ask for this crime to be created. And we'll see. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I know there's a few people that are going to buy it. <laughs> so we'll see how that all goes. And that, that unto itself, my editor has got a campaign in mind and we'll see, we'll see how that uh, all eventuates. And hopefully that'll be, I don't know, late summer or fall. I'd certainly love to have it that it's at least for the Christmas season. So that was right? your original goal, you said, to, get, to recover some of your legal costs. That That's was the original, right. but, but it's my not anymore. My original goal was to recover my, my legal fees of $250,000 as my original goal. And that's, that's a lot of books, but I, who knows? But your goal has changed since then. Is that what you're saying? My goal would be, to, that would still be there, okay. but it's also, this can be helpful to other people. If yeah. it can be helpful, then, then, then that's a good thing. That's a good thing to try to create positives, just like the podcast. If I can interview 
let's suggest that you had a husband that was incarcerated right now and he's in his fifth year. That'd be an interesting discussion. Yeah. And yeah, I could, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I know what to ask. And I would, and I, I want to do that. The question is going to be how many people are going to want to reveal their story, right? Some do and some don't. It just depends. Mm -hmm. And it depends how I, you know, as you know, doing podcasting takes a little bit of time. There's a process to it, right? To arrange interviews and just pull it all together. And so it's just going to be dependent upon the time. The good news, again, my son with his business, um, or with, with what he does, he's a, he's a big help on the technology side. So we'll, we'll just, I, I don't have false expectations. I'm not jumping in saying, oh, we're going to do this and I hope to do this and I hope to do that. No, we're going to take one step at a time and we're going to see how this continues to progress and I hope favorably. I've gotten okay. good comments. I've gotten good comments from some friends that think it's great to go out and do this yeah. with the podcasting, but yes. you know, we shall see. Right. And then as Brian has told us, it'll be interesting for both you and me to see who some of the people are we eventually end up interviewing that we don't even know. Right. 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 And, and he certainly has done well with that, which is great. But also looking, comparing you with Look, yeah, I think imagining you in September 2011, before this nightmare started, mm -hmm. and um, and looking at you now, what what's the biggest change that occurred? The, Apart the, from the fact that you are three three two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Yes, the biggest thing that has changed. Um, Oh, massive amount of skepticism for the government. Okay. Uh, so from, from, I mean, just think of the last six years. Let me back up. Think of the last 10 years in anybody's government, right? I mean, it was a different time, certainly when this all happened. So there's, there's skepticism. There's a lack of trust. I mean, I've got a good friend that was in my case with me. He doesn't trust any phone call that he gets. He doesn't know if somebody's taping him or not. Yeah, but, but, but I met you as a person. when you. Yeah, go I don't to worry about that so much. But I, I'm more skeptical of, of, of governmental. See, I'm, I'm so much more, I'm just stating fact. I'm so much more well-read, so much more knowledgeable. And I'm not anywhere near the naivety that I was at that time. Because I had dealt with so many companies and so much in terms of trying to raise capital for companies that I thought I've heard most every story. I absolutely mm -hmm. never suspected that it would be a continuous platform of lies to hook you in and then say, well, you knew or should have known, so you're guilty. Huh? It didn't make sense. So it's, it's, it's the knowledge, if you will, of the political systems that, well, particularly in our country, and the knowledge of the legal system, that part I've developed, not just skepticism, but uh, inconsistent lack of trust and faith, right? Okay, and, then as you as a person, Jim Prangi, what's changed? What, something must have changed after this experience. Well, I've always had, because you had asked me a question about what, what, what are some of my things? What are some of my things? 
by that I mean this, um, follow through, okay? And I use that word three times with you. It's persistence and follow through. Yeah. Okay. And I'm very, hey, I'm not perfect. Nobody is. I can tell you that I follow through. I'll make 10 calls. And if they don't call me back, I'll follow through on all those people to, to follow up. I try to do extremely well on that word called follow up. And, and, and I'm going to say that, that, that part, I don't want to say it changed, but it probably got even stronger. Mm-hmm. Because you recognize, you recognize, and, and, and I just thought of this Nabucco, what's changed definitely is my lack of desire for putting up with bullshit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if they use that term in England, but we use that term here. No, sure. That, and that would be when people start giving you something that would have to do with the system. Well, you've got to, you know, you've got to follow this protocol and this protocol or this or that. And that may not be proven to be the protocol, but they're saying it is. And so I'll call people on some of their things. I have less patience for bullshit, for lies, for what could be perceived to be deception. I, I, that would be a big thing. I'm definitely less patient with, I'll say it one more time, with bullshit. And it might be my perception of what they're saying, but I don't like to put up with, with things that are, uh, that are incorrect, that are wrong. Uh, you know, simple example, you're at a store, you ask a store employee a, a question about something and they have no idea about a simple question. And I'll say to them, do you know you work here? For the next people that come here to ask you questions, you might spend some time learning about what the hell your own store does, you know, for your own policy, that type of thing, instead of going, oh, well. Good on you, Jim, because that's what podcasting is all about, isn't it? It's authenticity. It's honesty. Yeah. It's honesty. and, and, and Authenticity. I, yeah. Yeah. I like that word, though. I don't like the bullshit. <laughs> I don't. I never have. Well done. Thank you very much. It's, it's, it turned out to be such a long, uh, gosh, two-hour interview. But So I shall leave you and I will meet again next week and you're going to talk to us about um, your expertise as um, on, um, private equity financier because you helped lots of startups um, raise capital and help yes. them grow. Yeah. Okay. Then see you next week. Thank you. Bye. It's been great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Bye.